welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia, how are you? Hi Carrie. I'm very, very good actually. I just got back from a weekend in Margate for a double celebration. So it was my friend Chris's 40th birthday, which is also fucking crazy. And it was Margate Pride. So we did a lot of dancing. We did some swimming. We wore some sequins. We marched in the parade. There were actually also a surprising amount of Morris dancers that was I was not expecting. Wow. <laughs> yeah, amazing queer Morris dancing troupe. Yeah, they were phenomenal and very loud with all their bells. It's great. And we all wore, Chris and I were accidentally wearing hats that looked like the Morris dancers' hats with ribbons on. So I nearly got recruited. <laughs> It's your new life. Imagine. It's Morris I'm, dancing. I'm up for a go. How about you? How are you? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not bad. I, it's like we're recording this in the midst of the most horrible British summer I've ever experienced <laughs> in my life. <laughs> so I hope by the time it airs, it, you know, it's, we will have seen some sunshine. But other than that, you know, things are nice. That's it. It's the thing about English weather that is so interesting to me is that the sun always comes out at the end of the day. Yeah. Have you noticed that? It's so yeah. interesting. And so we're recording this as the sun sets and it's extremely beautiful. And so I'm, I'm feeling thankful for that. It's called intermittent reinforcement. It's how we keep you here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we fuck you up and then at the end of the day, it's a little pat on the head and it's keeps you true. coming back for more. It's true. And I'm yeah. like, it's so beautiful. What if it was like this all the time? <laughs> Maybe tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But on to the show. Today, we're thrilled to welcome the Nigerian writer Arinze Ifakandu to the show. Arinze's debut, God's Children Are Little Broken Things, is a beautiful collection of nine short stories about queer lives and love in Nigeria. One of the great pleasures of reading his book is savoring the art of the short story, but also seeing how stories can be built into a cohesive collection. So we thought this was a great time to revisit the theme of the short story, something we last discussed with Jessie Greengrass in January 2017 when she came on to talk about her collection, An Account of the Decline of the Great Auk, According to One Who Saw It. We'll be thinking about what makes a great short story, how we like to read them, and the stories and writers of short fiction that we return to again and again. But before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little more about Arinze Octavia? I sure can. Arinze Ifakandu is the winner of the Dylan Thomas Prize and Republic of Consciousness Prize for his first book, God's Children Are Little Broken Things, an AKO Kane Prize for African Writing finalist and a public space writing fellow. He is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop. He's also a finalist for the Kirkus and Lambda Prizes and a recipient of the O. Henry Prize and Short Story Prize Spotlight Award. He was born in Kano, Nigeria. Also, as a reminder, we are on Patreon. If you would like to support the work that we do and get extra content, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash litfriction and get monthly exclusive mini-sodes, as well as the chance to suggest topics for us to talk about. Our latest Patreon was about birthdays in literature. You can find a list of all the books we recommended today on bookshop.org. Now stay tuned for our interview with Arinza our discussion of the short story, and finally, our usual reading recommendations. So we'll try to keep it short and sweet for the next hour of Literary Friction. Arinze Ifakandu, thank you so much for being with us here today on Literary Friction. Thank you for having me. So we've asked you to start with a reading. Would you mind setting it up for us? Um, yeah, so I'll be reading from the title story of my collection, Ghost Children and Little Broken Things. So I'm just going to read from the beginning. You met in your second year at the stadium one cloudy June evening when you played against his department. He was not a player. He was too small to be, even though you knew that bigness wasn't the stuff anyway. But he was so small, so fragile, you were dead sure he had never kicked a football. He reminded you of Dave. You walked up to him at halftime and told him that he reminded you of someone. The way he smiled, 
his eyes lingering briefly on your sweaty chest, and then on the ground, made you certain that he was one of them. Dave was one of them too, and he had almost put you in trouble. I wanted to tell you that you remind me of someone, you said, and then you were gone. You lost the game to his department. On your way home, you called Rachel and told her you loved her so much. Did she know that? She giggled, and you told yourself again that Dave had almost put you in trouble. Jesus. So you met him again at Christ Church Chapel, where he played the organ so well on Mothering Sunday. The entire church was filled with the tender lights. The women burst into tongues in the middle of hymns, and the chaplain, for once, didn't say first and last verses only. He did not look fragile on the organ. After the service, you lingered around the door of the choir room until he came out and said, Hey. Hey, you said, scratching your head and glancing at the door, at the floor. That was great, what you did up there. Thanks, bro, he stuttered. I wasn't so sure at first. But then, you learned that day how well he could talk and not bore you. Later, he would tell you that he had been afraid you would walk away again. So he had talked and talked. You exchanged numbers and you whistled on your way home, skipped by the roadside like a little boy. You did not call him. He called you twice, first to know how your day had been. You said, fine. The second time he called, he told you that his piano instructor was OCD. The man didn't give him any breathing space. And you said, really? Yes, he said. After that, he stopped calling, and you did not call either. Not until the night the maybe texted you that mom and dad were quarreling. Could you please call them now? You were asleep when the text message came in, and when you woke up at midnight, you had 11 missed calls. You tried to call her back, but she wasn't answering. You started to dial mom's number, but then stopped. Then... He dialed his number. His voice was rough. Hey, Rotanda, he said. You sat on the bed, running your fingers through your hair. Hey, come see, he said. Didn't expect you to be awake. I'm rehearsing my exam pieces. I see. You told him everything, how every time mom and dad quarreled, even though it was in low tones, the entire house seemed to reverberate with their bitterness how it hurt you in the chest so badly you couldn't breathe. He was so quiet. He said, I'm not even sure why I'm telling you this. I hope I didn't disturb you. No, no, he said, not at all. Okay, he said, and asked how he was doing and what were the pieces he was playing. The girls from your department had a football match with the girls from his. The match was already on when you came and you walked straight to him after shaking hands with your friends. He folded his arms across his chest, smiled so wildly it made you happy, simply to stand there saying, How have you been, bro? He was wearing three-quarter shorts and his arsenal jersey, the hair on his legs and arms black and curly against the light brown of his skin. You have nice legs, he said. Let's run. He said no, weakly. But you pulled him up, called him lazy, and laughed at his pout. He had not run a hundred meters before he bent over, his hands on his knees. His classmates were laughing. Mozart, you the four hands, oh. He panted and collapsed on the track, lying on his back. Lazy, you said, smiling down at him. Is this how you do your girlfriend? He arced an eyebrow, staring at you. You did not hold his gaze. You merely chuckled. You sat on the ground beside where he lay. Thank you so much for that reading. And I think it really gives a flavor of this collection, which is so smart and tender and beautiful. So I wanted to just start by asking you a question about the collection in general, all of the stories of which are about some form of queer love in Nigeria. And I wanted to ask you why why you wanted to keep returning to that theme in this collection? 
Huh. I mean, I think in my own experience, I've always been fascinated by love, you know, as an experience. I remember when I was a little kid, <laughs> long before I knew that it was possible to sort of marry a man, <laughs> I still had my desires for boys, you know, my all my thoughts, my romantic thoughts and my, my crushes, of course, were on boys. This was me in second, like, you know, as a kid, like, let's say, early secondary school. And I would, like, stay, like, I remember, like, when, when I was alone, I was just, like, think of the kind of marriage I would have, <laughs> you know. And I, so I think, like, the very idea of love has always been, has always, like, been, you know, in my mind. But, you know, when I, when I had that imagination, when I had those thoughts, it was always a woman that was in my mind. And that was because... You know, again, I'll just call it the heterosexual propaganda <laughs> because that's like what I had around me, you know, women and men in relationships and in marriages. So my my own dream for my future sort of captured that. But what has remained the same now when I, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, of course, I'm gay. I want a man in my life in, you know, in this, in this way. But, you know, the texture of that love remains the same, which is, you know, I guess... Being a queer man, because growing up again, the reason I had that imagination of like having a wife in the future was because in the books, in the movies, in real life, I didn't have those examples, you know, of men in love with men. And that was almost like an ambition for me. I'm just like, I'm going to fill this world with <laughs> with books where men are loving men so that like young boys like me elsewhere, perhaps, in, you know, who just like also see themselves in those books. Yeah, and I think in these stories, the thing that struck me was how beautifully and powerfully you write about desire, especially the desire of those early stages of attraction in a new relationship or in a new kind of crush. And there is something that's very specific to your characters about those desires, but there's also something really universal about that feeling that's accessible to any reader, right? And I wonder, like, how did you find a way to get to that very powerful truth of desire? Did you go inside yourself? Did you like reach for other stories? I'm just, I'm curious about how you found that pulsing truth, you know? I think there's, there's a bit of that, like there's a bit of, like there's a lot of it also comes from like, again, I think I have always taken my desire seriously. Yes. I'm like, I guess not perhaps not seriously, but with a bit of curiosity. Not a bit, but a lot of curiosity. So it's like, I feel a certain thing and I'm like, okay, why do I feel this way? You know? And I guess perhaps that's like my artistic mind working, which is like, I have to understand this thing. And sort of in talking to other people and sort of in my relationships with people and my observations with people in society, again, like I see similar trends. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's almost as if everybody's individual and different in their own way and yet things certain things are the same you talk of boredom you talk of you know you talk of like feelings of loss and you talk of like dread you know sort of the fear that's you know like what's what does tomorrow hold and like what do i want to do today since tomorrow is not guaranteed i think and then we find that people are reacting to these feelings in different ways the way i react to dread or it's not the same as how someone else would react but you know, it's still the same thing we're reacting to, the same human feeling, the same human experience. And I think for me, like, desire is one of those things. So I guess I would say, like, it's just like a human project for me, which is like, <laughs> how, who am I? Like, why why do I feel the things I feel? And who are, who are these men? And why do they feel the things they feel? Yeah, and I love that you use the word human because that was something I wrote down as I was reading. Like, the characters in this collection are so human. <laughs> they're complicated. They make complicated decisions. They have complicated motives. They're very different from each other, but they share a, a lot of ways of relating to the world. And I wonder, you know, when when you're writing fiction, is this something you're thinking about, about not necessarily the thing somebody should do or the way somebody should act, but mm -hmm. just the strange ways that humans sometimes conduct themselves in the world? Yeah, absolutely. I guess I, I see myself or, you know, as, you know, it can be quite confined in a way, but like as a realist writer, right? And I look at society, I'm always fascinated by like, sometimes like people do things and I'm just like, why, why? And I remember being in secondary school, <laughs> being in secondary school and then like, I was never good at math. Like I'll be in math class, I'll be so, so confused. I'm like, ah, 
x minus this plus this bracket this equals this and this and these are the formulas and my classmates are just like the, you know it's like a, it's like a call and response so the master is in front of the board he's solving the equations he's giving them the formula and he's like okay what next and they are responding and i, I just remember I'll just be like my sitting i'm thinking why why does x minus this plus that equal this why and then i remember like i would go back to some of my friends who are good at math and i'm like help me help me get it and I'll be, I keep asking one. They'll be like, "Don't ask why. Ask how." <laughs> like, <laughs> like you're asking the wrong questions. And I'm like, "I guess I'm good." You know. So I think, like, even in my relationships with people, and like, even you know, I go to a new place, and I'm just like, "Why? Why? Why? Why?" And my friends are like, "Stop asking why. Just like, just accept that this is how it is, and then move on, and like, deal with it the way it is." So, but I think it's also how my mind functions. And then I go back to fiction. I'm just like. Why? And then that's where everything comes from, you know? Yeah. <laughs> when you're writing a story, are you, if you know, you're writing with the question why in mind, but I'm curious because these stories feel so brilliantly tightly plotted and they're stories that to me, they all have very large worlds within them, right? Like they, I feel like they could each almost be a novel in, in themselves, which is, I love that kind of short story writing. I'm so curious to know when you start writing, do you know where you're going or are you writing to discover? Mostly I write to discover. There is an idea which is like, okay, I know the general premise. I know, I guess I know the the, the general conflicts, right? And it's usually something simple, which is something like, at least with the collection, it was, you know, people grappling with each other and with things that are larger than them and stuff. So I have an idea what the conflict is. But sort of the unfolding of the story, I kind of allow a certain kind of free-flowing. I guess I'm going to see what happens next. But there's there's also a bit of control that goes into it because sometimes I have to step in because, you know, something that comes with that sort of free-flowing attitude to work is a certain kind of paralyzing indecisiveness. And I'm like, oh, this story could go three different ways. Like, for example, the novel I'm working on, I'm just like, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. And it could happen this way, it could happen this way. And I'm just like, these are all good, or these are all good ideas. <laughs> so how, how, which, like, what's, what's the best, like, what, which one would serve the, you know? So there are moments where I have to sort of put my foot down and, and make an executive decision. But a lot of it is like discovery. I was interested to hear you talk about the central conflict. And to me, reading these stories, you know, you're talking about being in relationships and and often being in conflict, even with the people we love. And I really felt that. But I also felt that a lot of these stories were about conflicts with larger institution and a culture that is not always accepting of, of people being gay or being queer or wanting to live with other men. And I wonder how you thought about those kind of dual conflicts, the kind of institution and the culture but also the the personal, like what what do you see as the greater conflict, or do you see that as all part of the same issue? Hmm. I think a lot of the conflicts we have with ourselves and with one another stem from the pressures that we face in society. You know, I mean, like it's like society pushes us down. I remember before I left Nigeria for the US for my master's in my friends and I <laughs> will go to from choir practice and then we'll take like these long walks. And I would like see him off to his house. He would see me off back to my house. And at, at the end of the night, we'd, we'd sort of agree to meet, to stop halfway and we'd have like long talks. And part of what we're talking about around that period was just the, how difficult generally economically Nigeria was, which was a result of, or which it continues to be that way. So which is a result of greed of people in power and their short-sightedness and their lack of imagination, right? But where we feel the pain mostly is in our families. So imagine living in a country where, you know, a lot of people have been sort of physically, materially impoverished by this corrupt and immoral system. And we see how that sort of fit, like sort of fizzles down into the home. And so that's like, I guess that's just one example of how sort of the larger things in life can sort of press that on us. We're talking of relationships, for example, between men and two men in a homophobic society and you're like you're seeing two people for example who actually have great chemistry they love each other you know they care about each other at least they're invested in each other's prosperity and i mean like prosperity both materially and sort of emotionally but then you see and you're looking at 
what's what's holding them back? And you're like, oh, it's this society that has said this is the way men should act and this is the way men should be with one another. It's so true. And I mean, you sort of mentioned masculinity there, which was something I wanted to ask you about because your characters, they're grappling with vulnerability and the vulnerability it's necessary to kind of experience if you want to meet somebody in love and in truth, right? Yeah. And sometimes that seems very at odds with the demands of masculinity yeah. and they're struggling between these two places. And I wonder if you could talk a bit more about your relationship to masculinity as a writer and mm-hmm. and how you wanted to approach it in your in your writing. Yeah. So I grew up as a, like when I was a kid, basically, like growing up, I was a, I was a very girly boy. And by girly, I mean like, you know, at least by other people's perception. At home, that was not like, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize I was a girly boy. <laughs> when I played with other kids, like, you know, you know, we played like mom and dad, I would be like, I would tie my mom's hair tie and like, <laughs> and I, I felt very comfortable playing that role, you know? And I'll like, I'll like put clothes in my stomach and I'm like, oh, I'm pregnant. And then like, I give birth to a doll and I'm like taking care of the doll. <laughs> and, <there's>, like, <laughs> and stuff like, that has always been, you know, and then I go into secondary school and suddenly people are like, oh, he's doing like a girl. And suddenly these things have certain names and like those names are sort of, you know, things like homo, which is like, you know, faggots by western standards you know what i mean like so it's like like you begin to receive basically violence because mm. you're a boy who acts like a girl and a boy shouldn't act like a girl and so there's like this conflict right from like you know that early age between who or you, the way you you naturally express yourself and who the society wants you to be you know how the society wants you to express yourself and it's not just like your peers it's like actually and the peers actually learn it from from the older people because, you know, I went to this Anglican school where people would like this the church was just like the um administration was just very tightly observant of like they'll be like, oh wow, two boys holding hands. I'm like, this is an all boys school. Of course, boys are going to hold hands. It's a boarding school, they're far from home. They're going to at night, they're going to cuddle. It's 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 a you have like you pack these whole students in like a room full of bunk beds. <laughs> you know, it's stop looking at children and thinking, oh, what are they doing? Are they trying to like touch each other like what's your what's your problem <laughs> you know like and again yeah. it's like that's violence that adults can sometimes bring into <laughs> you know into the lives of children and like, as you growing up I had to sort of like you know it's it's had if an effect on me but like I had to sort of begin I, I began to sort of grapple with it in my fiction. So I guess it's it's that thing of again sometimes I ask myself today would I feel comfortable walk catwalking down the street you know I mean like <laughs> Am I, would I, or would I feel ridiculous? Because I had to learn the masculine step, you know, mm. over time. And again, so I, when I go back, when I go to fiction, and this story is not just like unique to me. It's the same thing with like a lot of people I know. I think you write about sex really well. And I think that's a difficult thing to do because I think sometimes it can be cliche. It's easy to to make it kind of ridiculous. I just wanted to read a passage that I think maybe gets to what's so great about your writing about sex, because I feel like it's another space for you to play out these relationships. And this is from the story, Happy is a Doing Word. And it says, you like it? So Medina said, not in the voice that he would use with the girls and women years away. He'd not yet learned to treat pleasing someone else as an act that affirmed his power over them. He asked because he wanted to know, and Benulim said yes, and it was not a performance of surrender at all. This was not a game of owning and being owned, not yet. That's such a beautiful passage, and I wonder if you could talk about how you approach writing sex and maybe maybe about that power element as well. Firstly, I don't see sex as a taboo thing. Mm. Because again, I'm writing for my pleasure first and foremost. And so, like, I'm like, I want, you know, I want, what what kind of book would actually totally, like, grip my attention? It's a book that I'm opening it and I'm, like, seeing, you know, like, sex treated in a way that it's not, like, you know, this grandiose thing. You know, it's not like, I shall now deal with sex in this book. <laughs> and, it's, <laughs> and it's also not an issue where it's like, oh, I'm, I'm shy, I'm shy of sex. And because to be quite honest, like, this, you know, there's like also like our internal world, like our thinking, us, you know, us, like, you know, our minds. That's like 
that also participates in sex, right? It's not just our bodies. That's, you know, when we are, when we're being intimate with someone. And so like, for me, it's like, how do I capture that's all of that, right? And so even the, even the sort of ugly part of sex, which, for example, things like douching, which is like what, so <laughs> I joke with my friends, I'm like, I want to see more books where like, you know, gay men are about to go hook up and they just like, the bottom just like goes into the bathroom and it's like, oh, I'm about to douche. And like, it's so ordinary because that's also part of sex, you know? Mm. And it's like the ordinariness of it. But also, you're also meeting, for example, someone and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit, maybe you might feel sometimes like, beautiful or you might feel insecure or you might feel too vulnerable and so like i try to sort of capture both the physical and sort of the mental part of part of that of that of of the act I, i guess absolutely and you also the other thing that you take very seriously in this collection is is language and communication and the things we can say and also the things that we can't say and the things that remain unsaid with our our voices but said in other ways but also you have characters switching between different languages. So they're speaking sometimes in English, sometimes in Igbo, sometimes in Hausa. And each of these languages has a different meaning depending on the context, depending on who's speaking it and what they're expressing. Could you talk a bit more about the different ways that, that you use these languages in these stories and what they represent? Yeah. So Nigeria is multilingual, you know, with Igbo, Yoruba, Hausa, a bunch of languages. And there's also pidgin and there's and there's like you know English and and all of that, but there's also like place. So for example, you 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 go into you go to school, you go into a classroom, and the language is English, and there's someone to speak Hausa there. It's kind of out of place, and so it becomes interesting in the context of fiction because something is happening in that moment, something illuminating, I guess, right? And so for me, like. Like using language in that way was a way of sort of like, first and foremost, most most importantly, sort of like give a real sense of place and of like, you know, what it means to sort of inhabit that space. But also like, you know, I sort of see this shift in dynamics between characters, whether it's like age differences. For example, there's like a moment in Mother's Love where the mom is like, oh, you're not speaking big English for me. <laughs> which is the way of like saying, why are you speaking in this high register? <laughs> Suddenly bring it down to where, to the language that the both of us understand, you know? And so language does that as well. Like, and sometimes language can also estrange and it can also invite. My uncle, he's a choir master for fun and a lawyer professionally. So mm-hmm. when we choir, during choir practice, and like, it's like, you know, he's speaking English, right? In court, he speaks English fluently, right? Very good English. I do too. But then when the both of us are together, I speak, if I'm going to speak in like standard English, it's going to be halting. It's because that's not the language we speak with each other. We speak pidgin English. You know what I mean? It's like, mm. so like when I speak English to him, it feels forced. Therefore, it's not going to come out the way it's coming out with you right now or with like, let's say someone else with whom I have a different relationship, even if it's an intimate relationship, but I had maybe that, that relationship has sort of like, we grew, like, you know, it was founded on sort of the foundation of, standard English. <laughs> and so like for me, all of that is important sort of to capture when writing, sort of think of the ways in which language functions. So the larger theme of our show today is short stories in honor of your collection. And I wonder if you could just talk about the form. What do you like about the form? What does it give to you? What do you think are some of its limitations, if there are some? I'm so interested in what drew you to writing short stories. So I thought I wanted to write a short story because I was like, oh, a novel seems too, too Herculean. <laughs> but, you know, I'm like, I'm going to use a short story to learn how to, you know, and to just like, you know, to grow into an adult. But to be honest, when I was in secondary school, I had written like a few, <laughs> you know, those like scribbled novels you write in your, in your notebooks and you like keep. And like, I had never written a short story collection. So if we were to look at it, I had more experience writing novels because I had read more novels than short stories. I don't, so I don't know where I got that idea that short stories were going to be easier. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I came to the short story with sort of like, that's, you know, that's, but then like I found like something that I love about the form is that like, as a reader, when I read short stories, I love Jhumpala hearing, you know, I love mm. Yuli. And I'm just like, there's something full about these worlds. It's not just like, 
a singular conflict, a singular event, and you know, and that's like bam, and that's like it. And you know, they're like, oh yeah, that's you know, people like try to sort of like was it was the word now they want to sort of like lecture about what a short story should be and they're like oh yeah it's a singular action and it's this and a poem just like a poem a single action i'm just like you're just talking rubbish now (laughs) 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 because it can be whatever it wants to be it's just a short form that's all it can be whatever it wants to be and so like as i think in writing this collection of stories like the challenge for me was i'm entering into a different mind space as well the beautiful thing is that I can enter into a world and I can get my gratification much quicker than I than I can <laughs> when I'm writing a novel. You know what I mean? Like, because I'm like, okay, I have highest 10,000 words and this is over. You know, I can pack so much into that small space. Compression, I think it's a beautiful thing, compression. And I'm just like, yes, I'm having fun here. You know, and I think to be quite honest, if you're going to, if people are going to pay me a bunch of money to write collections of stories, I'm just going to keep doing that. You know, but no, <laughs> nobody wants to pay you a bunch of money to do that. I <laughs> so... know <laughs> oh, they really should, though. They really should. I mean, also, I saw in the front of the book, you know, some of these stories have appeared published elsewhere before they were collected, and it made me curious how you decided what order to present the stories in, in this collection? Because they do take you as a reader, they obviously stand alone, but they take you on a journey. And I'm, I'm curious to know about your thinking around that. You know, writing the stories, it's just like one story comes, there's a moment I, you know, I'm in that headspace and I do it, and I, you know. But when I sent it to my agents, it, it, I, the order, I did not pay attention to the order. Like when my agent was, before she began sending it out. So when my agent had read it, she was like, how do you think about this ordering? So like this final order you have in this collection was my agent. And I think what happens is that like, for me, after I have written and done like maybe a bit of my own editing, it's almost like there's a fog immediately. And I can't, I'm like, when she's like, I remember she was asking, um, so I really, how, you know, do you have thoughts on how we could like arrange this story, like the progression of stories? I was like, I have no thoughts. They're just stories. Please jumble them anyhow you like. <laughs> 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 because I could not like, you know, it was too much for me to sort of see, I, like opening the book, I'm just like, all I see are words right now. Like it, it was just too much. So I think, yeah. So that, that was, that was, that was my agent's work. And I, <laughs> you know, people, a lot of people have actually been like, oh, the order, like the progression, it's works. I'm like, look, to this day, I'm just like, if you left it to me, I would have just jumbled it anyhow. You guys are going to read it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you about endings because yeah. I think endings are really hard anytime and they're and they're maybe even harder in short stories because you you have to pack a punch and you have less space to get to the place you're going. So, do you find endings difficult because some of the endings of these stories were really impactful and I wonder if you sort of knew that that was where they were going to end or if you arrived there through the writing? Endings are like interesting to me because in fact, I, I love endings because I'm always looking forward to them. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I guess like when I write, I write to my own, to my, to my full satisfaction. It's like eating a meal and I'm like, okay, now I am full. I will no longer eat. So that's like, you know, I, there's never for me that I never really know, you know, whether this is the ending or not, but some, I just feel it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, yes. Okay. I think. I'm moving towards something. And I guess like whenever I write, I'm writing again, I guess that's everybody writing towards that ending. And so when I begin to feel it, I begin, you know, I'm like, okay, yes. I want my endings to have a sense of like, you know, I was telling my friend (laughs) when I went back to Nigeria, he had read a copy. His girlfriend actually had read a copy. And she was like, I really say, I read this ending. And I'm just like, we need something. What you know? Is, are you sure this has ended? I'm like, yes. I want you guys to be on your tippy toes, and so that's like, <laughs> <laughs> and so that's like the feeling. I guess like with endings, like you think, what feeling do I want to be the most resounding feeling for me when I'm writing a story, a book, whatever? I want the reader to go through a bunch of feelings, but there's always like a feeling or a set of feelings that are sort of the dominant feelings, and so usually. Again, the story and in general sort of conjures up that feeling, but you know, the ending sort of in in my opinion cements it, right? And so like I'm like, okay, what kind of ending? How do I want to end? Do I end do I have like a closed paragraph where everything has been closed and you know everything has been settled and even if like the conflicts are not settled, but like link like the language sort of settles the matter, 
or do I want an ending where it's like a punch in the gut and you're just like, what? You know? And so it depends on the, it's all about the effects. Yeah. The yeah. desired effects. Arinze Ifakandu, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction to be with us today. Thank you for having me. Okay, Octavia and I are back here to talk about the short story. As I mentioned in the intro, this was something that we discussed with the writer Jesse Greengrass in 2017, but I can't quite believe that that is like six years ago. So it feels ripe for reinterpretation, rediscovery, expansion. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. And also 2017 is an absurd number. (laughs) (laughs) But as I was wont to do during that era of literary friction, it looks like I spent a lot of time trying to define what a short story is. I love the definition. (laughs) (laughs) But I do just want to shout out two things that came up that I thought were really lovely. I particularly like Edgar Allan Poe's idea that a short story is something that you read in one sitting, which is Mm. so short and simple and true. Anyway, I also liked uh, Eudora Welty's idea that a short story should be something that has one mood. Yeah. Again, that's a rule that gets broken, but it's an interesting thing to think about when we're thinking about what a short story is and what it does. But let's move on from trying to define it. And instead, I would like to ask you, what do you look for in a great short story? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's the voice. I mean, it could also be the mood, to be honest, but but maybe more specifically than that, the voice. So if the the voice of the of the story, it doesn't obviously have to be of a narrator, but just if the story doesn't grab me in the first couple of paragraphs, actually, then I think I find it pretty hard to persevere. And I think that the shortness of the form kind of enables that sort of ruthlessness. Like I would never abandon a novel that quickly, right? I would I would give a novel a couple of chapters. But I guess in a short story, you know, a few paragraphs is the equivalent of a couple of chapters, right? If you boil it down. And then I guess beyond that, beyond voice, what tends to hold my attention is is a really great concept, right? So whether that's a story built incredibly tightly around the exploration of a particular idea or just really, really vivid characterization, which I think Arinze does so well in his stories. I guess that the main thing Really, with a short story, I want to feel like the author is really in control. Because it's so condensed, I need to feel, I think, that I'm in really safe hands and I can trust the author to deliver me somewhere deliberate. Whereas with novels, I'm much more up for kind of meandering looseness and a bit of getting lost in the middle. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I I love that point about it being hard to describe and to kind of pin down because I think the shortness of the form allows for a lot more potential for experimentation um, and surprise, as you say. And I like that idea of control. I think that kind of sums up a lot of the great short stories I love, even if they're really different from each other. I also think there has to be some kind of movement within it that makes me want to keep reading. This is hard to define because it doesn't have to be plotty per se. And as I said, I think it's a form that can handle a lot more experimentation without it getting kind of exhausting. But I just, I want there to be a shift happening and I want that shift to be part of the reading experience. I want it to take me somewhere. Mm. Again, that's so vague as to kind of not be be helpful at all. And the other thing I would say is I think it's really hard to end short stories, maybe even more than ending a novel, because I don't know, novels are so long that the ending almost has less weight. Well, as we have discussed, you and I never remember what happens in a novel. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. But a short story, it's like, it's really hard to end a short story. It's really hard to stick the landing. And kind of an expansion of that point is that I think I want the ending of a short story to leave me wanting more. I want to be curious about what happens after the story ends. I I want there to be something about the world that remains with me and keeps me wondering. But 
to think more about the form and the experience, what form do you prefer to read a short story in? Because I think short stories more so than maybe novels or poetry come to us in a lot of different forms. They're in magazines. You can listen to them in audio. They, they come in collections sometimes. What's your preferred way in? Always audio, I think. I love listening to them. And I think that's very much shaped by my long and enduring relationship with the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, <laughs> which I first started listening to when I lived in Paris in my early 20s. And it basically the episodes were the perfect length of time for my walk to work. So I would listen to the whole, you know, and my walk was about an hour. So I'd just, I'd listen to one every morning. And I think because that also evokes the experience of being read to, there's something quite primal that it connects to. But yeah, I, I I listen to them. And then if I really love what I'm hearing, I will go and find it in print because I do think there is, you know, especially with very tightly woven, very cleverly plotted short stories, they always benefit being read more than once, always, always. And I like to both listen and then read with my eyes if I can, because you pick up different patterns that way. But I also realize that because I love to listen to them, my main source of short stories is The New Yorker, both the fiction podcast where writers are reading the work of other writers, but also the other podcast they have called The Writer's Voice, which is where writers read their own short stories. And, you know, this is a problem because actually it means that my experience of the genre is being profoundly shaped by this establishment publication. Inevitably, it's pretty limited view. It skews overwhelmingly American it skews overwhelmingly traditional, actually. And that, I think, is a problem. So I, I need to push myself out of the audio-only relationship with short stories, I think. Or if anyone has any great recommendations for other audio means of accessing short stories that aren't just via The New Yorker, that would be amazing. Oh, yeah. Please hit me up. It's interesting because I know we have talked about the New Yorker fiction podcast a lot, and I did used to listen to it, and I don't anymore at all. Mm. I don't love audio short stories. Maybe now that I've had this audiobook renaissance, I should return to it and see how I feel, but I almost always prefer to read short stories. That said, I am skeptical about short story collections. I almost think this is my issue rather than the collections issue, but... I don't love having to restart again and again and again when I'm reading the book. It frustrates me unless stories are really, really closely linked in theme or maybe they're linked by characters or place and it feels like something is really cohesive. If it feels like a short story collection is just a collection of stories that the author has published, I get frustrated. And I think it's true that some stories are just better in collections than others as well. And so I don't know, I just get so I just get sad to leave a story that I really love and experience one that isn't as good. So I'm not a huge reader of story collections although I've I've definitely picked them up over the years and there are some that are transcendent and wonderful. So I guess my preferred way is actually just reading one story and and I guess actually the way those usually come to me is via the New Yorker. So like you I have a very limited perspective. I do love when short stories get like circulated online, which happens. And, you know, I know if I was a more virtuous person and more like the person I wanted to be, I would always be seeking out like cool zines and the latest fiction and, and reading everything. But I don't always do that. So that's where I am with, with the form. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But is there a short story writer that you find yourself returning to? And if there is, what in particular do you love about the way that they write stories? I love the way Jennifer Egan writes. And I think, I mean, I think you can definitely argue that both of her books lean slightly more towards being novels than collections of linked short stories, which they're often described as. But, you know, what you were just saying kind of frustrates you. I think that in those books are a really good way of countering that because even though each chapter is focusing on a different character and, and a different idea. There is a continuous world around them. Like similarly to Arinze's book, actually, like it's, they, they feel cohesive. So you get the satisfaction of reading about an, about a, a world that is coherent, even though each chapter can kind of stand alone as its own story. And I think that her skill really is building a whole world in the space of a single chapter or short story. So she has a, an amazing 
way of just of that kind of immersive writing that we were talking about being so important in the short form. But also I can't miss mentioning Borges here. Ah, uh, Daddy Borges. Daddy Borges. <laughs> he's still my daddy. He is the master of the form in my view and probably the short story writer I've revisited the most. I read his stories every year and I have done since I first started reading him um, when I was 19. And you know, every time I go back to them, they reveal something new to me still, which is absolutely remarkable. And every story he writes has so much intellectual depth. The ideas range from, you know, absolutely cosmic to very, very minute. He hits an incredible range in very, very few words. And it it can be kind of dizzying. They're very compact and dense a lot of the time. But I love that he uses the form as a philosophical tool and as an ethical tool and he's so playful with it and he ex- he uses it to kind of tease ideas out in this very playful way and sort of troubles at the fabric of reality and he he imagines into these gaps in our understanding and in doing so he kind of almost basically discovers new alternate realities and i think that they are a kind of they offer you a bit of a playground as well, which is which is such a gift. If you've never read any Borges, I would recommend starting with Ficciones, which is fictions in English, which has this story in, in it that I think about constantly called Funes el Memorioso, which they tra- translates roughly as Funes the Memorious. And it's such an elegant exploration of memory and of identity, but also like the tyranny of precision. It's about a young man who can't forget anything. And it is completely phenomenal. And it will make you think differently about what we value it within our own minds in a very profound way. Wonderful. What about you? Who's your, your top dogs? Well, since we recorded our show in 2017, I have discovered Alice Monroe. Hey. And oh man, that woman is a great short story writer. And I should have known I would love Alice Monroe. I think I kind of knew I would love her from the way that people described her and the, the things I'm interested in. But I'm so glad I finally kind of got in there. And I'm not the first one to say this, but every single one of her stories is so packed with feeling and meaning that it feels like a novel in miniature. Yeah. It really does. And she she imbues the everyday with significance and wonder, something I also love. And her relationship to memory and the past is so interesting and so compelling. No story is really existing in one place in time. And speaking of the flexibility of the form, I think she's found really interesting and you know, really subtle ways of moving through time and moving through memory and experimenting with memory and the many selves we occupy over our lives and and using writing to kind of layer those in a really interesting way. So many of her characters are looking back on something or remembering something or re-remembering something or like remembering multiple things at one time. And she somehow balances it all in this very delicate, beautiful, emotional way. So I, I especially enjoyed her collection, Hateship, Friendship, Courtship, Loveship, Marriage. Beautiful, beautiful writing. I also think Jesus' Son by Dennis Johnson is one of my favorite books ever. The images and characters that he manages to conjure in that book are burned into my brain. Wonderful story. I still think about this when it starts to hail and the way he describes the hail is like nothing I've ever read. I I, I think I gasped when I first mm. read it. It's so wonderful. And and something I read recently that I really loved, Mel Malloy's uh, Both Ways is the Only Way I Wanted. I hadn't heard of this writer and I still think about scenes from her stories now, which is a testament, I think, to great writing. Yeah. So... If you had to recommend one story to our readers right now, what would you recommend? Okay, I thought I'd just go for one that I encountered recently. So I'm going to say Colorin, Colorado by Camille Bourdas, who's a French writer and academic, um, but she lives in the States. And I heard her read it on the New Yorker's The Writer's Voice podcast. And it's about a writer who's being interviewed by this documentary filmmaker and they're asking questions about her relationship with this former writing student who went on to become a big Hollywood celebrity. And I almost switched it off because I was like, this is all a bit inward facing. I sometimes am extremely over writers writing about writers or writers <laughs> writing about like the writing milieu. 
But then I I got sucked in and actually I was really glad that I didn't abandon it. It's really interesting. It's about power and memory and storytelling. It's about plagiarism. It's about ownership and appropriation. It's about voice. And it's very, I, I found it, something about it had this kind of very interesting clarity, basically. It's clever and it resists easy conclusions. It's also very easy. There's something about it that's very easy to listen to, very easy to engage with and relate to. And it left me thinking, which is what I love short stories to do. Wonderful. Maybe that's my reintroduction to short story and audio. Oh yeah. I also would love to talk about it with you, actually. What's yours? Mine is a story, an, another recent read from the collection Send Nudes by the British writer Saba Sams. I am so desperate to read this book. She is really good. Uh, she's, the, the one story that I'm going to recommend is Blue Forever spelled EVA. And it's the story of a 12-year-old girl, Stella, who goes on holiday with her mother and her mother's new boyfriend and the boyfriend's older 18-year-old daughter, Jasmine, who is from a previous marriage. And actually, basically, the the boyfriend has left his, his marriage to be with Stella's mother. And of course, Jasmine wants nothing to do with this holiday. She wants nothing to do with Stella. And then Jasmine's friend Blue comes on holiday and starts to pay attention to Stella and things go from there. And I love, this is a story again about power, about shifts in power, about relationships and shifting dynamics. It's also about crushes on older girls and the intensity of those and Mm. the meaning of those and the kind of nebulous queerness of those in a really interesting way. Brilliant. Sounds fantastic. Okay, I'm back here with Octavia and Dorenze to give our monthly book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start with yours? I would be delighted because I am very excited about this book. It's called Valentino by Natalia Ginsberg, and I just loved it. I took it with me on holiday to Marseille. And so I, I feel like I read it in that kind of perfect environment of being separate from my life and in this new place. And just, I could completely dedicate my attention to it which is also easy to do because it's this, it's a very tight little novella. So you can read it in one go. And it's just been published by Daunt Books with a really fantastic introduction from Alexander Chi, which I also really, really recommend reading because he's brilliant about it. And the story is narrated by Valentino's sister. So that's the voice that we're with the whole way through. And it contains this kind of really beguiling mixture of naivety and also clarity. She tells us the story of her brother, basically, who is this vain and kind of spoiled guy, very flamboyant and extravagant. And the family's basically been convinced, particularly the father, that that Valentino will one day become a man of consequence. And this phrase is repeated again throughout the novel, Valentino, the man of consequence. And his two sisters can actually see that he's not interested in that at all. He's meant to be working hard at medical school to become a doctor. And his sisters can see he's just not doing it. He's going to parties instead. And he's much more interested in how he looks and fashion than he is in any kind of studying. And he doesn't seem to feel this debt of kind of obligation to the family and all the money and energy that they're putting towards his education. And anyway, one day he brings home this new girlfriend and it puts the cat amongst the pigeons within the family. She's much older than him. She is much less physically attractive than the younger girls he's normally dating. And she is really wealthy. And so the family kind of scatters into disarray because of their various reactions to this fact. And I'm not going to give any more away because it's you, you need to go with Ginsburg and how she explores it. But I think what develops in the story and where the story ends up is just, it's brilliant. And it feels really deeply emotionally true. It feels very faithful to that process of kind of seeing somebody differently as circumstances change around them. And it's one of those books that manages to do this kind of big emotional work with very few words, 
And it, it kind of lifts the lid on, on so many different intersecting things like social class and aspiration and shifting relationships within a family and resentments and how they fester. It's wonderful. It's short. It's kind of a little bit mean. I really, really recommend it. Wonderful. I've been meaning to read her for so long. I've heard she's an incredible writer. Yeah, such clarity, just a real clarity of voice that I find very engaging. Arunze, could we have your recommendation? Yeah, so I've been reading like a bunch of things at the same time. <laughs> the book I completed like last, I think a few months back, The Sorrows of Others by Ada Zhang, who, so this this is a collection of stories. I think what, what, what I really love about it is just like the wisdom in it, right? And sort of like the, there are like sort of one of my favorite, one of my favorite stories there is this girl who has, you know, she has moved into this to prove, I guess that she's trying to sort of like prove how sort of, maybe not work, but kind of chic she is. And then she has moved in with this older Asian lady. She is also Asian, but this is set in New York, I think. And then she moves in with this old Asian lady and she's a, she's a painter and, and she's trying to like, you know, she's an artist. She's trying to like, do some work and she's interviewing this woman as well and just like their lives are quite different in a way she's young this woman is way older and you know has a past life and, and a past marriage and stuff and and just like again it's that fullness of life that is it that she that's that's the writer is able to capture in such a small space story after story with the very little observations here and there you know i call them little not because they are they are small or few, but because they're not like those kind of observations that hit you over the head and you're like, please give me the story and leave your... No, these are observations that are like infused into sort of the character's experience. Another book that I love that I'm reading is a book of essays by Mary Geitzkill called Oppositions. Oh, we love Mary. I'm in love with this book. I haven't finished it yet. I'm like halfway through, but I just love it. I love, I love her thinking. So the first essay, she goes on, she's like talking about something traumatic from her past when she's like way younger. But then like the conclusions are quite surprising in a way that's also, you know, it expands your world. Um, and I think that's beautiful. And then there's also this essay where she talks about like learning to ride a horse and the difficulties involved and just like the intimacy or sort of the bond she formed with a particular horse at some point. And I'm like, yes, yes, give me that. Like, that relation, like, it's real. Like, she was talking of, like, you know, putting your hands on, like, the back of the horse and something like that, and that's, like, feeling a certain kind of energy. Like, the way she describes it, it feels almost almost as if the horse is not a human being, but, it, like, it take, you know, the seriousness with which she takes it. It's like this, this, pers- this, this, this persona within this essay. And just her way of seeing, I think is very interesting to me. So recommend. Wonderful. Those both sound great. And yes, we are huge fans of Mary on this podcast. And she has she has that same clarity, doesn't she? Of, mm. of voice and of thought. That is amazing. So I'm going to recommend Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran. This is a narrative nonfiction book that tells this absolutely wild true story of a series of murders of Osage Indians in Oklahoma in the 1920s. And so the Osage, like so many tribes, had been forcibly removed from their homes by the American government. However, the place that they settled, that they were told to settle basically, turned out to be on top of some of the most productive oil wells in the country. And so they became incredibly wealthy, sort of like some of the most wealthy per square mile people in the nation at one point by selling their head rights to these oil companies. But then basically a number of Osage just began to be murdered. And it's about this terrible crime. It's about how poorly it was investigated. It's about the birth of the FBI, the investigation and trials that followed, but most importantly about the utter, utter mistreatment and racism that Native Americans face and have faced basically since the arrival of of white settlers. And I finished the book just filled with grief and outrage and so glad that the story was told. 
Grin is, he's an amazing storyteller. He's incredibly gifted, but he's also a very gifted journalist. And the way he structures the book is actually, he has three sections. One that's sort of following the perspective of Anna, who is an Osage woman whose sister is murdered. Then we're sort of seeing it from the perspective of a federal investigator who finally comes to work on the case after a number of false starts. But then actually we get Grant himself looking into the story as a journalist many years later and sort of thinking through the implications of his work and his research and meeting people from the communities. And it it really works to have those three perspectives and to think not only about this story, but also the larger implications and what it means to write this story and what it means to be a journalist. Anyway, it's just a tour de force. Martin Scorsese has made it into a film that is coming out, I think, this fall. And I'm really interested to see what he does with it. But in the meantime, everyone should read the book. My God, it sounds amazing. Also, so interesting when nonfiction works of journalism do that and really force the reader to think about what it means to tell a story and how you never have the whole picture, even if the journalistic voice is supposed to sound like it does, right? Yeah. I I mean, it is my preferred way of reflecting on these things. Some people get annoyed by it, but I love it. I love that meta level. Yeah. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Arinza Ifakondu and to Daphne Carnesis and George Miaris for editing. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram and you can get in touch with us by email lipfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference. It helps us reach new listeners and we will love you forever if you do it. We will. And we will be back soon with another minisode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>